It's an ongoing conversation that we have from us to the congregation uh, among all of us as, as believers. And uh, for this, we ask you to read ahead. So when we're going to read something from the book of John, when we're going to teach on it, we'd like you to read ahead and to come prepared to hear because we can't say everything that could possibly be said and we can't say everything that we're not saying. Okay? There's another reason for giving an overview, though. We want you to know the man who wrote this book. So you'll come to know the one he wrote about. This is a very personal story. More like a memoir than a history. John introduces us to his friend, as we sang this morning, and his teacher, and his Lord, Jesus Christ. And as we come to know John, and as we walk with him, and as we see Jesus through John's eyes, we're drawn closer to the one who is also our friend, and our teacher, and our Lord. This book, more than any other one in the New Testament, elicits from us an emotional response to Jesus. You know, most of the time when I read the Bible, I nod off. I, I don't know how it is for you, but, you know, especially the genealogies, you know, I just, I just you know, so when, when you read John, this is a personal memoir that he's writing. It gives you a chance to get an insight into Christ. We're drawn into a relationship with him as we respond to Jesus in love, and we do that because of his love for us. We find ourselves being conformed increasingly to his image as we do that. Now, I did a little research. I have a habit of quoting from John in my sermons. You may have noticed that. Of 204 sermons, when we were planning to do this book, I counted up of 204 sermons, I cited John in 165 of them. I cited First John, his first epistle, his first letter, or his book of Revelation, in another 10 of them. So apparently, of all the books of the Bible, John is the one that predominantly guides my understanding of the rest. And I think you'll find that's true for you as well. That the more you come to understand the book of John, the more you'll give, uh, the more it will give you insights into the entire rest of Scripture. If uh, you didn't know, John uh, was quoted five times last week when Jason gave his sermon. <laughs> so it must be one of his favorite books too. In fact, when he prayed this morning, he prayed from the book of John. Our theme for this year is the compassion of Christ. John helps us see Jesus' compassion in both words and in deeds, and in the relationship they enjoyed together. Jesus confided in John more than any of the other disciples except maybe Peter. At the Last Supper, John sat closest to Jesus when Peter prompted him to ask him, psst, psst, who's that that's going to betray you? Go ahead, ask him. Jesus explained things to John which he didn't share with the other disciples. Maybe that's why John's gospel includes things that the other three don't. I think John not only heard deeper things from Jesus, but he understood them better too. John strikes me as a child prodigy. Maybe 14 years old when he began to follow Jesus. His teacher led him in the paths of righteousness and opened up the word of God to him. He became a disciple of Jesus, like the other um, disciples. That was how higher education worked at the time. You go find yourself a teacher, and you follow him, and you listen to him, and you obey. If I'm right about John's young age, it may account for Jesus' special care of John. I think the others were just a bit older, the other disciples, maybe 17 to 20 years old. Peter was probably the oldest. We know he was over 20 because in Matthew 17, 24, he was subject to the temple tax, which only adults paid. He had to be over 20 to pay that. Go get me double drachma. Go get a fish. 
and open up his mouth and, and you'll have a double drachma. So he was at least 20 years old. One for you, one for me, said Jesus. The other disciples weren't mentioned in that context. We know Peter was married at the time. You can look at that uh, in Matthew 8.14, Mark 1.30, and Luke 4.38. Paul later tells us that some of the others got married too. Maybe by that point they, they'd come of age and therefore got married. This may be something new. I may be reshaping the way you've looked at the book of John before or as you understood the disciples before. I, I hope it changes the way you look at things. I do. John's father was Zebedee, a merchant fisherman. The Jewish historian Josephus tells us that his mother was Salome. James was his older brother. John was one of the sons of thunder, which means he was quick to speak and slow to listen. <laughs> it means he often put his foot in it because he was so boisterous. His young age would explain his youthful exuberance. It would explain why his mother spoke to Jesus on behalf of her two sons, asking if they could sit at his right hand and at his left hand in his kingdom. You see how that begins to help things fall into place. It begins to make sense of the rest of it. And it explains why Jesus said to his own mother at the crucifixion, Woman, behold your son. And to John, behold your mother. John would be to her the fleshly son that she was losing. And that's how close John was to Jesus. He was the disciple whom Jesus loved. John would have been 17 by then. Mark tells us that Salome was there at the cross too. See that in Mark 15:40. I can imagine her nodding at Jesus' request from the cross between sobs of grief. John did indeed take Mary into his house to live with him. It says that in the 19th chapter. John's young age may explain how he beat the elder Peter to the empty tomb in a foot race. I'd like to use that as an excuse. Well, you know, I'm just old, you know, and you're younger. <clears throat> it's uh, also, uh, it's, it's illustrated in the deference he showed to Peter by not entering that tomb first. He waited respectfully for the elder disciple. I'm coming, boy. I'm coming. John's young age may explain how he beat him and those other things. This image of John, this image that I'm giving to you right now is one that I've had in my mind since my early days as a believer. Jesus, at age 30, gathers around him a group of young men to invest in, empty vessels, ready to raise up to be faithful followers and worshipers of God. Maybe he didn't teach them about fasting. You know, why, why aren't your disciples fasting with everybody else? Maybe he didn't have them fast because the young bodies were still growing. They needed their food. Ask any parent of a teenager how often they have to fill up that refrigerator. That time would come for fasting, but not while the groom was with them. Until then, they were new wineskins, that's how they're described, able to receive new wine. Now, it's important that our children be instructed by the church, by the teachers in the church. I think that's an important thing for kids to learn, not only from their parents, but also from the elders of the church. Our youth are vital to the health of our church. With their enthusiasm and curiosity about deeper things, it makes them susceptible to be taught. We'll say that. When I look at their faces, I think of John, who leaned on Christ, and of Martha's younger sister, Mary, who sat at the feet of Christ. Why was that? To learn of God from Him. Young ones naturally go to older ones to learn from them, the things that they have to say to them. 
So when the rest of the 70 disciples departed from Christ, these young men remained to become his apostles, his messengers and ambassadors to the world. Consider that Spurgeon first preached at age 15. Maybe you didn't know that. And he became pastor at the Metropolitan Tabernacle at age 20. His lectures to my students show how important he felt it was to minister to the youth of his church. J.C. Ryle felt the same way, presenting a series of lessons entitled Thoughts for Young Men. Archibald Thomas was baptized by Spurgeon at age 17. He was just 10 years younger than Spurgeon. He took over the pastorate at Stepney Green at age 22. I'm tempted at this point to ask everybody who's over age 22, you know, so what's your excuse? No, I just... He, uh, this gentleman, Archibald Brown, uh, filled in for Spurgeon at the Metropolitan Tabernacle. Can you imagine doing that? Here you have one of the most famous preachers in the world, and this young man comes in to fill in for him. Wow. Again, I ask, how important, how vital are young people to the ministry of our church here at Hope Chapel? How vital is it that young mothers teach their children about Christ? That the older women teach the younger, that the older men teach the younger, and that the younger ones respect and learn from their elders? This, too, is the way of Christ. Let the little children come to him, for to such belong the kingdom of heaven. Children are eager to learn and to explore new things. Jesus referred to the disciples as his little children. He does that in chapter 13, perhaps alluding to Isaiah 54:13, which we heard about a couple of weeks ago. All your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. John used this term, little children, repeatedly in his first epistle. In 1 John 3.18, it says, Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. It was a term of affection. He learned it from Jesus. It characterized John's relationship with Jesus. An affectionate, intimate relationship. What happened to John? He wrote in his revelation that he was imprisoned on the island of Patmos, quote, for the testimony of Jesus Christ, unquote. The Roman Emperor Nerva freed him from there around 96 to 98 AD. We know from tradition that the rest of the apostles had been martyred by then. Only John remained. Jesus foretold this in John 21, 23. Peter was asking, so what about him? What about the runt? And Jesus says, what's that to you? You, you? you do what I ask you to do. You do my business. Let me worry about him. Tradition also says that John died at Ephesus in 110 A.D. If he was 14 when Jesus called him, as I think he was, he would have been 94 when he went to be with his Lord. Okay, let's go through our usual way of examining the, this, uh, any book of the Bible, including this one. Who wrote it? When and why? The context, key phrases, and who was the audience? When we read the Bible, we also want to study the Bible, and these are the ways that we do that, by asking these questions. So who? Well, obviously John wrote the book, otherwise it would be called the book of John. But it's also because he says so. In chapter 21, verse 24, we find the following statement by John, speaking in the third person. This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things. So he's self-attesting it. All through the book, John refers to himself indirectly as the disciple whom Jesus loved. He was not boasting. He wasn't bragging. He was deflecting attention from himself to his Lord. 
Jesus' love for him was John's only claim to fame. And guess what? That's our only claim to fame as well. The phrase itself is used four times in John. It refers to the one who reclined with Jesus at the Last Supper, the one who was at the crucifixion, the one in the fishing boat who first spotted Jesus and said to Peter, Yo, it's the Lord! And the one who would remain behind long after the others. John the Apostle wrote this book as an eyewitness. Keep that in mind. He wrote this book as an eyewitness. He's not recording, like Luke did, the sayings of everybody else. This is his eyewitness testimony. He had, he had direct knowledge of these things. In chapter 21, verse 24, he continues, and we know that his testimony is true. Oh, okay, so who's, the, who's this we? Who's this we? Somebody's added this extra text at the bottom of the book that John has written, and we know that his testimony is true. I think it uh, is interesting that it asks the question. Some think it was affirmed by the elders at Ephesus where John was where he died. I, I think it was written earlier than that. Others think it refers to the bishops of the churches in Asia Minor. Still others think he wrote it on behalf of all the apostles, as in his first epistle. First John 1 John 1.1, it says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. So there's this eyewitness testimony aspect to everything we read about in John. But that same epistle, his first one, provides another insight into this pronoun, we. It says in 1 John 5, 7 through 8, For there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit. And these three are one. And there are three that bear witness on earth, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And these three agree as one. In other words, they are testifying or affirming the things that are written. But whoever it was, this we, they confirmed it. We know that his testimony is true. In other words, we've seen these things, we've heard these things, we know these things personally, and we are affirming and attesting to the truth of what John has written here. When did John write his book? I think it was prior to 70 AD. And that's because when the temple was destroyed, it was 70 AD. And there's no mention of the destruction of the temple. It was still standing in John 5 too. It's also apparently still standing in John's Revelation. So you know, this is a minority view. It's not just Billy's view, okay, but it is a minority view. So you can take it with a grain of salt. If I'm right about John's age, he would have been 57 years old in 70 AD when the temple was torn down. Remembering back to what it said in Matthew 24, not one of these stones should be left on another, and to see it actually take place. Those who date the book at 95 AD rely on a statement by Irenaeus. Some of you prefer Irenaeus. In the second century... His name is Irene. Irene. No, it's before your time. Uh, Irene means peace. Irenaeus. In the second century, a hundred years after the events, saying that it was written during the reign of the emperor Domitian. Others think Irenaeus mistook the name Domitianu for Domitian. Others, everybody has an opinion. But you should know that Domitianu was a nickname of Nero, who died in 68 AD. That, I think, is a better explanation. Frankly, it's hard to know for sure. To me, the earlier date seems a better fit for what we see and also for what we don't see in the book of John. There are three synoptic Gospels. There are what? Three synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, okay, are called the synoptic Gospels. Basically, that means you can lay them out side by side 
and like a deck of cards, shuffle them and get a single story as you put all three together. It's uh, telling the same story from three different vantage points, but John, the book of John is different. He doesn't make, um, he doesn't relate just the public facts or the events and the words of Christ. He doesn't relate just those things, but he also relates for us to read and for us to learn and for us to know about, for us to share in the private conversations, private conversations, the private prayers, and the purposes of Christ as Christ expressed them. And we don't find those in other places. Where does John's Gospel differ from those other three, from the Synoptic Gospels? Well, first of all, what has John left out and why? He leaves out the birth of Christ, as if that had already been handled by Matthew and Luke. No need to go down that road. Indeed, the historian Eusebius lived about 320 A.D. Uh, Eusebius says that it was written after these two Gospels were written. So that makes sense. We're trying to put this together from a historical perspective so we understand it better. John leaves out Jesus' baptism by John the Baptist. He leaves out Jesus' temptation in the desert and the bread and the cup at the Last Supper. The kingdom of God is mentioned only once. Unlike Matthew 13, which says the kingdom of God is like over and over and over again. John says it only once, and that was in Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus when he said that we must be born again to see the kingdom. No parables are mentioned. No exorcisms. No healing of the lepers are found in John. So what is John included? Only John contrasts the children of God with the children of the devil. Only John has Jesus promised to send the Comforter to abide with us. He would remind us of what Jesus said and teach us all things. Only John provides us with Jesus' final prayer, asking that we might be one with him as he is one with the Father. Only John was, has Jesus restoring Peter after the resurrection, asking three times, do you love me? Do you love me, Pete? I know you betrayed me. Let me erase those by having you give me a firm affirmation. Do you love me? Lord, you know I love you. Do you love me? Lord, you know I love you. Do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. Forgiving each denial, each shortcoming of Peter's faith, proving that salvation is by grace alone. By grace alone. Generally, the Synoptic Gospels focus on Jesus as the Son of Man. We're learning about this this morning in uh, the church history class. But John focuses on Jesus as the Son of God. He begins the book with Christ's preexistence. Jesus is the eternal Word become flesh. John ends with breakfast by the sea at the dawn of a new day and of a new covenant. Over 90% of John is unique among the four Gospels. Unique. You'll only find it in John. He lets us know that Jesus visited Jerusalem four times, not just once. He's the only one who records raising Lazarus from the dead. John alone has the washing of the disciples' feet. And only John identifies Jesus as the Lamb of God. That's a title. John gives us a bunch of titles in his book. As we read through it, you'll hear the following. The Word, the Light of the World, the Only Begotten of the Father, Son of God, Christ, Son of Man, Rabbi, Bridegroom, Prophet, Savior of the World, Healer, Great Physician, Giver of Life, Judge, Bread of Life, Resurrection and the Life, the way, the truth, and the life, the one who testifies, the Father, the Sheepsgate, the Good Shepherd, the True Vine, and the King. That's a lot of titles. We find them in John. 
As I said, John opens with the deity of Christ. Jesus uses the phrase, I am, seven times in the book of John. Seven is the number for perfection or completeness. He claims the personal name of God as his own. Jesus is portrayed as knowing from the start what will happen. That Judas would betray him and that Pilate would have no power over him unless it was given to him from above. John says five times that Jesus imparts life to us. So that must be important, right? We talk about repetition. When you hear the repetition, you say, Woo, pay attention. That we might have it eternally and abundantly. Eternal life is the present possession of all those who believe. And eternal life is knowing God. That's what Jesus prayed in John 17, 3. And this is eternal life, that they might know you. Key phrases in the book of John. Statistics. Sometimes they're helpful. I think this is helpful. Key phrases, knowing and believing, are mentioned over 90 times. And they're always used as verbs. In other words, John exhorts us to actively know Jesus and to actively believe that he is the promised Messiah. In the first chapter, Andrew runs to find his brother Peter, saying, we have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. So, why did John write the book? Well, he tells us that in chapter 20, that these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That was on our title slide this morning. It's up on the board right now. In other words, the book of John is what we call an apologetic, a defense of the faith. It is proof that Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth is the Son of God, the promised Messiah, the anointed one, the root of David, the Redeemer and rightful King of Israel, the Holy One of God. He is both the Lamb of God and the Lion of Judah. He is both Master and Friend. He is both Savior and Sacrifice. He is both God and Man. John drives this home chapter after chapter after chapter. He proves this by Jesus' miracles, especially the resurrection. Jesus said, John eleven twenty five, 25, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, yet he shall live. John proves this statement by showing how the prophecies of the Old Testament were fulfilled in Jesus through circumstances over which no ordinary human being can control. We find that in 217, 539, 631, 45, 1214, 15:25. That's why I didn't put these on the bottom of your handout. It just go, you know, it's too much. John's brother James was beheaded by King Herod in 44 AD. We read that in Acts 12:2. This book that John has written to us, this memoir that he's provided for us, is his proof that James, his brother, did not die in vain, nor did Stephen nor did Peter, nor Paul, nor any of the others. And so in his revelation, John records for us these words of Jesus, Revelation 2.10. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. In his gospel, John points to seven miraculous signs of Christ's identity and of the power and the authority granted to him by God the Father. These are bold-faced on the handout in your bulletin. So if you haven't looked in there yet, ooh, surprise! What do they call those? Cookie. There's a cookie. There's a cookie in your bulletin. So,
It lists uh, some of the chapter highlights in there as well. So you know where things are as we go along. In other words, you should take that out of your bulletin and you could put that into your Bible, unless you have an electronic Bible, in which case you're out of luck. So what are these seven signs? In chapter 2, the first sign, the wedding at Cana, turning water into wine. Chapter 4, the second sign, healing the official son at a distance. Chapter 5, the third sign, healing the lame man at the pool of Bethesda. He'd been waiting 38 years to be healed. Chapter 6, the fourth sign, feeding the 5,000. Again in chapter 6, the fifth sign, Jesus walks on water. Chapter 9, the sixth sign, healing the man, the man born blind. In chapter 11, the seventh sign, raising Lazarus from the dead. These miraculous signs have no value by themselves. Their value is showing that Jesus was who he claimed to be, as attested by God through power, as we sang this morning. Acts 10.38, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth, hmm, Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Paul echoes this very same thing when he says to the Roman church in Romans 1.4, Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. The seven signs that John gives us attest to Jesus' power and authority as the Son of God who had come down from heaven to redeem his people. The book can be divided in half, almost neatly. Chapters 1 through 10, as you see on your handout, are centered on Jesus coming from heaven to reveal the Father to us. Part 2, chapters 11 through 21, are centered on Jesus returning to the Father to open the way for us. I'm going to prepare a way for you. I'm going to prepare a mansion for you. And if I promise, I'll come and I'll get you. Now, some divide it in half after chapter 11, after raising Lazarus, which is the seventh sign. And that works too. Lots of ways that you can outline a book of Scripture. I, I've never found two outlines that match. I've been at this for 40 years. I've, I've looked at a lot of outlines, and everybody's got an opinion. So that's one way to do it, one way for you to look at it. Who is John's audience? Us. Who is he writing to? What does he want them to take away from it? It seems clear that he's writing to all believers, that includes us, to embolden them and to help them remain faithful and also to avoid error. John is a very doctrinal book. I often speak of John as the theologian of the New Testament. The Jews who followed Jesus on the testimony of the apostles encountered severe adversity. They were expelled from the temple and from the synagogues. They were ostracized socially and economically. They'd be comforted to know that they weren't the first to have this happen to them for trusting in Christ alone for salvation. The same happened to the apostles before them. John records this. John is writing to all those who didn't know Jesus as he did. So it might be helpful as you're reading the book of John to think of John coming alongside you and taking you by the hand and saying, come, let me show you my Lord and Savior. Let me introduce you to him. Let me tell you about him, about the things that I know for sure about him. That's why I say it's a very personal testimony. They may not have doubted, they may have, they may have doubted Jesus' love for them. Why? Because of the persecutions. It's really easy to think that I've screwed up somehow and God really doesn't love me and that's why all these bad things are happening. And John is testifying, no, that's just not true. He's writing to those who doubted Jesus' authority to bring about the things that he promised. 
Oh, he just said that. He didn't really mean that. That's not literal. John also found that some had twisted the gospel, trying to explain away who Jesus is and what he had done. Every heresy that ever was and that ever will be is based on those two things. Who Jesus Christ is and what did he accomplish on the cross. Just so you know. Others use mysticism to explain the mystery of the gospel, rejecting the plain truth of it. Based on a few things written in John's first epistle, some denied the incarnation. Again, we learned about that in the history class today. They said that Jesus was just a man, or that he only appeared to be a man. And in response, John affirms that Jesus was truly God and truly man, without any confusion or intermingling of the two. John's testimony is affirmed by his own sacrifices, his own trials in the cause of Christ. John was sentenced to be boiled in oil, and later he was imprisoned at Patmos. He was sent freed a year and a half later by the grace of God. John's testimony recorded here must have carried a lot of weight with those who didn't know Christ face to face as John did. You know, Paul speaks of that. Here I am locked up in prison. I'm in chains for Christ's sake, you know, and uh, I do this for your sake and I do it willingly. Well, that's John's testimony as well. But they came to know Christ more intimately through John's gospel, and so do we. And that's the whole point. This is another one of my pointless sermons. Okay? If there's one point, that's the point. So do we. We come to know Christ more intimately through John's gospel. We don't just learn about Christ, but we come to know Christ. When I first came to this church, I I sat for a year and a half with one of the elders here, And every week it was the same discussion. I don't want to know about Jesus. I know a lot about Jesus. I want to know Jesus. And those were our constant prayers, was to come to know Him, that we might know Him personally, that we might have love for Him and love for His people, that the Word of God might transform us and not just inform us. So we walk side by side with John, sharing in his intimate fellowship with Christ, seeing Jesus through his eyes. That's what this book is about. As I said, John chose seven representative signs to prove that Jesus was who he claimed to be and that he'd been given his authority and his power from God above. These signs were in the form of miracles. You don't really believe in that, do you? They they were in the form of miracles. A sign or a token is one thing that stands for another. If you reach into your wallet, if you still have cash, and pull out a dollar bill, that is a sign, a token. Okay, it represents some place, some gold, some silver that somebody has, you know, and you could redeem this thing for that gold or that silver. Oh, that's right. Back in the 60s, they, they erased that. They erased that. It's never mind. Just trying to give you an illustration there. A sign or a token is one thing that represents another. As I said, these signs demonstrated his power and his authority. In fact, the word for miracle that's used in Acts and in other places literally means power. For those of you who like the Greek, dunamis, like dynamo. That's the word for miracle. In other words, means work, as in John 7, 21. I did one work, one work, and you're all marveling at that. The bread and the wine at the Lord's Supper that we shared this morning are signs. Right? They're signs. The bread signifies the sufficiency of Christ. As the feeding of the 5,000 signified his power and his authority. He met all their needs miraculously, inexplicably, 
supernaturally. The blood signifies his atoning work. It's a natural sign representing a supernatural truth. That's what's going on in the book of John. We have eternal life through faith in Christ by believing that he is our Redeemer and Savior, and those miracles were done to prove that truth. Now, we live in a scientific age, don't we? Mm. A technical age. Mm -hmm. A supposed age of reason. (laughs) Do miracles have any place in today's culture, or is it a relic of the past? Are we required to believe that suspensions of physical laws actually occurred as described in this book and in the other gospel accounts? You got to believe that in order to be a Christian? In brief, yeah, huh? Yes, you do. Miracles are a non negotiable part of the gospel account. If Christ did not rise from the dead, which was a supernatural and a miraculous event, then our faith is futile. Miracles are that essential to the gospel which we proclaim. So don't offer natural explanations for supernatural events and don't ignore them either, hoping, hoping that others won't ask you about them. You Christians, you don't believe in miracles, do you? And you go, yeah, let me explain to you what's going on. So let's take a moment to look at what miracles are and why they matter. Miracles are important to your own understanding of who Jesus is and of what he did by his righteous life and sacrificial death. Miracles, by definition, suspend the physical laws of nature. They're not an extraordinary thing. They are, by nature, an unbelievable thing because they don't match anything else in the reality that we know. They demonstrate God's absolute control over the physical realm as well as the spiritual if miracles were only psychological and emotional in nature, in nature, it's only, you know, oh man, that looked like a miracle to me. No, it's not a subjective truth like that. If they're only psychological and emotional in nature, then they would point to us and to our subjective experience of that. And that's not what's going on with a miracle. Instead, miracles point to God as an objective reality, as our transcendent creator and heavenly father. And if he can create all of existence out of nothing, These miracles are nothing. The purpose of these miraculous signs is to attest to the identity of Jesus as the Christ. They were done by Jesus to instill faith in his disciples, in believers, in you and me, not to convince unbelievers. In fact, John says those two very things in his book. The blessing for both the recipients and those who observed these miraculous signs was increased knowledge of God in Christ. That was a consequence of it. John 10, 37, 38. If I am not doing the works of my Father, then don't believe me. <laughs> if you're looking at the miracles and go, eh. But if I do them, and you're looking at them, even though you don't believe me and the things that I'm saying to you, says Jesus, believe the works, believe the miracles, believe the power, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. So why are miracles necessary? Uh, I'm tempted to say because we're all thick and we just don't get it unless we see something really, you know, out of the ordinary. But here's the thing. If Christ didn't do miracles, if he didn't take up his life again after laying it down, then he cannot physically resurrect our body either. If these miracles can be dismissed, so can Christ's resurrection. 
And if he wasn't resurrected, then as Paul said, we remain in our sins. Of all people, we are most to be pitied, says Paul. There'd be no gospel. There'd be no good news. There'd be no eternal life to look forward to. But indeed, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, Christ is risen. Amen? Yeah. So miraculous signs are not only important, but they are necessary proofs of Christ and of the gospel, which we know, believe, and proclaim. So that was a lot of information. You know, when we give a sermon, we, we, we say, look, don't, don't give an informational sermon. Give a sermon that's transformational. <laughs> but sometimes you've got to bring a lot of facts to bear, you know, before you can begin that transformation process. So let's do a recap, and then we'll look at some practical applications for us today. John was a young man who was called by Jesus to learn the things of God from the Word of God himself, God incarnate. John experienced Jesus' compassion through his personal fellowship with him. He bore witness to these things and he wrote them down so that by knowing and believing them, we here today might have life in Jesus' name. These things are John's testimony that Jesus is the promised Messiah, the Son of God who would save his people. As Jason prayed this morning, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life, John 3.16. That's the one where you see the placard go up at all the football games. That's the one. John presents seven miraculous signs as proofs of Jesus' identity. They show Jesus' God-given power and authority. Why? So that we might understand that the Father is in him and he is in the Father. They were done so that his disciples would put their faith in him. So that we would put our faith in him. Jesus came from heaven to atone for their sins so that none should be lost. He returned to heaven to prepare a place for us and sent another comforter to abide with us forever and teach us his ways. All of that is in the book of John. These miraculous signs are essential to the gospel we proclaim. They are proofs that Jesus is himself the resurrection and the life. He is literally the living proof of it. The savior of the world. So what's the application for this? Worship team, you can get ready. This will be another few minutes. How then will we respond to these extraordinary truths? How do we apply them to the life we're living so that God is glorified in us? How can they help conform us to the image of Christ our Lord? The answer to these questions are hinted at in Luke 10:22. All things have been handed to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So why did Christ come? He came to reveal the Father to us in physical, understandable, verbal, and visual, tangible form. John came to know the Father through the Son in fellowship with Him, learning from Him, having intimate conversations with Him, listening to what Jesus said to the Father in prayer, watching Jesus' compassionate interactions with those who belonged to Him, hearing His impassioned exhortations to those who opposed Him. For whoever believes in Him will have eternal life. John watched, he listened to, he believed, and he imitated his Savior. That's on your handout. Each of us can do what John did as we read and meditate on John's testimony. Each of us can share in his experience and enjoy that intimate fellowship. We, too, can come to know God in Christ. And as we do, my brothers and sisters, and as we do, we enter into his presence. We rest against his bosom like John did. And realize that we too are dearly loved. 
Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your written word. We thank you for the testimonies that we have from John and from the other apostles. We thank you for the concreteness of it. We thank you for the supernatural nature of it. We thank you for your spirit who opens it up to us that we might learn. We thank you that he teaches us day by day. That by his power we pray to you. And by his power we hear from you. Oh Lord God, bless us as we study your word. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.